Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Today we're looking at chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, a very familiar story. And since it is so familiar, we, we lose a lot of shock value that this story has. This story was utterly scandalous when Jesus first told it, especially in the context of telling it. The original audience was absolutely scandalized by what he said here. And so... Hear now the word of the Lord as we read from Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. By the way, those two things always go together. Self-righteousness always gives birth to, breeds and stimulates Contempt for others who are not as righteous. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's now look to the Lord together as we pray. Father, there's a sermon prepared, and there are people here to hear it. But it will all be in vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. So we ask today that not only the preacher would be empowered, but the listener as well. We pray that we would be willing to look into the mirror of the truth of God's Word. And though we may not like what we see, give us a strong desire to repent of things in us, maybe even blind spots that we don't even know are there. And that's why we're blind to them. So Lord, open our eyes that we may see the beauty of the truth. Show us the glory, beauty, uh, attractiveness, and suitability of Jesus Christ for our sinful souls. And this we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this series of messages that I've been preaching over the last few Sundays is called Gospel Reset. And I like to think of it this way. Uh, when I have a trouble with my computer, uh, one of the things that I've learned to do is to turn it off and turn it back on and sometimes reset it to the original um, settings 
so that the computer will function more effectively. However, there are things called viruses that get into your computer and wreak all kinds of havoc. I don't even understand how that happens. I mean, if you were to test me on how a virus can get into my little computer and cause such trouble, I would be, it, it would be beyond my ability to comprehend. However, same thing happens with our understanding of the gospel. There are viruses that can get into our heart, spiritually speaking, that can undermine and even dull the power and attractiveness and beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus himself is the gospel. And so sometimes we lose our ability to focus upon him and we become very self-centered again. And one of the expressions of self-centeredness that we often experience is called legalism. And legalism is so subtle it's, it's kind of like that Debbie Boone song when she says it feels so good it can't be wrong or what is it you light up my life it can't be wrong if it feels so right. The problem with legalism is that it often feels holy. It often feels like it's the right response. It's the right thing to do. It's very deceptive. I have never heard a person come to me and say you know Pastor Tim I'm struggling with legalism although I know already you are. Because it's in us. We have that virus. And certain things aggravate it. Certain things kick it into gear. And what happens is we lose our passion for the gospel. We lose our passion for living for Jesus. And so what I want to talk about today are the many faces of legalism, the danger and symptoms that the virus of legalism has entered our operating system and we are becoming dull and not animated, lifeless, uh, as people, as the people of God. And so the danger of legalism is that it builds up what Christ has torn down. It distorts and actually diffuses or destroys the gospel. It is inimical to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It lies at the heart of many pastoral problems and counseling problems and it's one of the most common spiritual sicknesses. Unfortunately it is an infectious disease especially if a pastor has contracted it. So it's important to be able to recognize some of its common symptoms and the first one I want to call your attention to is a self-righteous temper. A self-righteous temper. Legalism produces what our forefathers in the faith, mainly the Puritans, uh, called a self-righteous temper. Of course, it can do that in the limited modern sense of the word temper, such as anger or rage. But in the older sense of the word, it's closer to the idea of a temperament. A temperament, a, per a person's basic disposition. You know, temper can be controlled at least to an extent. Temperament, however, cannot be hidden. It will reveal itself. It's like the breath of a smoker or the scent of a very pleasing perfume. It discloses itself in a variety of ways, some much more subtle than others. Think of the Pharisee in Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Pharisees lived according to the strictest party of first century Judaism. Uh, 
The name itself is probably derived from the root to separate Pharisaism, and it was essentially a conservative holiness movement. During the intertestamental period, the period between the ending of Malachi and the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, was an era in which several parties developed in Judaism. The Sadducees, the Zealots, the Pharisees, and others. But the Pharisees were the people who were most serious about being holy. They were the ones that, that were the most strict. They were the ones who were the most conservative. You would have liked to have a Pharisee for your neighbor because they're strict, they're conservative, they keep their lawn mowed, they, they don't violate any HOA codes. They're just good people. They're the kind of people you want for a neighbor. You wouldn't want to have a beer with them, but you might enjoy having them as a neighbor because they're clean and they're safe. But the Pharisee here is depicted almost as a, what's a cartoon that mocks, what do you call that? Yeah. Yes, you're right. <laughs> Can't hear either. <laughs> now, Phariseeism was a movement. So the Pharisee was a person deeply exercised about personal and religious holiness in every single detail of their life. As a matter of fact, they don't think God gave us enough laws, so they added uh, at least another 256 to the law of Moses. Indeed, the Pharisee, Jesus' pictures, praying in the temple, went beyond the specific requirements of the Torah or the law. Listen to the prayer as he thinks of himself as, number one, he's not like other men. By definition, after all, he is a Pharisee. He's a Ten Commandments kind of guy. He alludes at least to three of the commandments while talking in his prayer. He's able to compare himself favorably with others. He does so specifically with a tax collector who entered the temple simultaneously. And that's a pretty low bar because you want to talk about a scoundrel. You want to talk about a person who is a traitor and a despicable individual. That would be a tax collector. They were the scum of the earth. And so he compares himself favorably with this guy. He's a man punctilious in all of his disciplines. He fasts twice a week, but the law only required fasting once a year on the Day of Atonement. The law included many more feasts than fast and required fasting, as I said, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. He was a self-sacrificing man. He tithed everything he had that could be named. The law required only a tithing of crops, fruits, and animals. Apparently, the Pharisee's tithing extended beyond income to his possession. So he expanded the law in order to bolster his righteousness. He did things that he in his own power could do to make himself acceptable. So who is this man? Well, Luke tells us that Jesus told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteousness. His faith was not outside of himself in a Savior, but rather his faith was in himself and his ability to be righteous. And he treated others with contempt. Pharisees couldn't stand to be in the presence of the unclean or unholy because it would tear down their project of holiness. 
But Jesus himself did not tell his original hearers this. Instead, we are given the impression that his hearers were probably led along by the Pharisees' hint that he was not like this tax collector. And so if this had been put on as a play, everybody would have applauded the Pharisee and everybody would have booed the tax collector. Surely the Pharisee was God's man. He was the righteous one who could leave the temple with confidence and assurance that he was justified before God. He walked with a mild disgust and a lot of smugness. God, it could not be, uh, before God, it could not be the miserable tax collector, could it? For apart from being a tax collector, and therefore by definition associated with sinners, he could not even lift his eyes to heaven. I'm talking about the tax collector. He couldn't even look up. And the acceptable posture of prayer etiquette was to look up toward heaven and hold your hands up. And notice he can't look toward heaven. He beats his breast in the light of his obvious sinfulness, an expression of lament and grief and brokenness. He cries out to God to be merciful. Literally, what he says in his prayer is, God, make an atonement for me, the sinner. The sinner. Propitiate me, the sinner. Since no sacrifice was prescribed for his high-handed transgressions, he acknowledges, not that he's righteous, but that he's the sinner. Now that was surely only one answer. There was surely only one answer uh, to Jesus' implied question. So which of these two men went home from the temple worship that day justified or righteous, that is right with, a holy God of heaven? Now we're over familiar with this parable and we lose its punch and its power. We already know the right answer. We've been immunized against the unexpected and indeed stunning truth. It was the tax collector that Jesus said was justified. How can we as contemporary Christian believers recapture the sense of shock at the hearing of Jesus' conclusion, the scandal of it all? And in one sense, the answer is simple. It should shock us because evangelical Christians may existentially have more in common with the Pharisee than they do the tax collector. Those into whose temperament justification by grace has fully penetrated. Do not look down on another person, including another Christian. The instinct to do so is one of the most obvious telltale signs of a heart from which legalism has not yet been fully banished. For it implies that we have merited grace more than someone else. I am more deserving of grace, which is a contradiction. You don't deserve grace. Grace is not grace. If you deserve it, grace becomes merit. Now we can do this in very subtle ways. I just discovered a couple of years ago that I was a grace Pharisee. Uh, that I, I looked at people who didn't understand the gospel and the depths of grace revealed in the gospel as less than me. Because I got it and they didn't. What is that? That's Phariseeism. That's legalism. That is me ascribing to myself merit because I understand the gospel. I understand grace. 
And as a Presbyterian, it's easy for our theology to become our righteousness functionally. We all know the right answer to the question. What makes me right with God? Well, it's the person and work of Christ. And yet, I will take my theological leanings, which I believe are consistent with what Scripture teaches, but I recognize could contain some error. I'm a sinner. I'm a human. I'm limited. Uh, but at the same time, I can act like I'm elite. I'm a cut above dispensationalist. I'm a cut above broad spread evangelicalism. I'm way above some of the other people. It's very subtle, this legalism. Very subtle. Uh, you just can't escape it. It attacks us all. Do not assume that there's anything in our devotion to the Lord that is reason for God's acceptance of us rather than of someone who lacks it. Let's say that I go to church every Sunday, but I know people who don't. Let's say that I read the Bible every day, but I know Christians who don't. Let's say I pray for an hour every day, but I know Christians who don't. And I think, well, God smiles on me more than them. Do not assume that it's on the grounds of a decision we made. For that matter, our years of commitment to Christ that we are accepted before God. None of those matter. Do not despise or treat with contempt, in Luke's expression, an embarrassing breach of etiquette or an outward show of sorrow in another person. So when was the last time you beat your breast and said, God, make an atonement for me, the sinner? You see, Jesus was all about the grace expose or the grace exposure. In many of his parables, it seems that Jesus exposes the legalistic spirit by describing massive outpourings of God's grace in deeply countercultural ways. In his teaching, grace is always unexpected. And so its appearance takes us by surprise, sweeps us off our feet, and evokes very basic reactions that often expose our hearts. Jesus had a way of entering into discussion with people that exposed them. I was visiting one of my daughters not too long ago, and she happened to put on the television a show that I've never seen in my life. It's called The Pimple Popper. Anybody ever seen that show? I don't know how you can watch it without gagging. But I did watch the whole, like, three episodes in a row. You know, it's kind of like going by a wreck. You just can't not look. And I thought, how ugly, how ugly to have that exposed and, you know, the pus. And it's just, you know, it's, it's nauseating. And yet, lots of what Jesus did in the parables is exposing the pus in us, pride, unbelief, self-centeredness, self-righteousness. That's an acronym I came up with, by the way. It's what I sit in the study and do all day is think of things like pus. <laughs> no, it isn't. But it's ugly. It's abhorrent. And Jesus said, let me give you a really good illustration of how he does this because it's, it gets real close to us. The welcome of grace the father gives to the prodigal son brings to surface the elder brother's legalistic temperament. In a similar way, it is the tax collector and not the Pharisee who is justified. Bare law can never accomplish this. It is the gospel's emphasis that we are justified apart from the law, period. 
We have no role to play in justifying ourselves. No qualifications, no ifs and buts, and that exposes our sickness. Similar symptoms appear in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. This is found in Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. I won't read it, but I want to talk about it a moment because it's very exposing. The laborers, as you remember, were all hired at different times during the day, some at the third hour, which would have been 9 o'clock, some at the sixth, noon, some at the ninth, three in the afternoon, or the eleventh hour, which would have been 5 o'clock. All hired at different times during the day. They are paid in reverse order on purpose. Those who have worked the longest are paid at the very last. They are thus able to calculate the hourly rate at which the master pays the latecomers. But then they receive the amount that was promised to the earliest workers. So naturally, those who had been there all day or most all day anticipate some sort of wage hike for themselves, already they're calculating their bonuses. If he's given a guy that showed up and only worked an hour what he promised me in the beginning, then I should at least get 11 times that. Now when those who were hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them received a denarius, as had those who began to work at 11, the last, the 11th hour, the last hour. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. In context, the parable is making a larger point about the flow of redemptive history and perhaps about the ingathering of the Gentiles. But within the immediate context, it is fascinating to see Jesus unpack the human heart. Had the all-day laborers not seen the latecomers receive their wages, they would presumably have accepted their payment without comment. It was the master's exhibition of grace that evoked their righteous indignation. Now we hear their murmuring spirit as they calculate what they have really deserved because of their work in the light of what others had received only as grace. This is a grace expose. Without the demonstration of grace, the true nature of their hearts would have not been revealed. But it was revealed. Of course, we may assume that later on, they told each other that their murmuring was an aberration. They were not usually like that. But the truth is, their reaction was a revelation. It had never appeared before, simply because they'd never encountered grace before. This legal temper has many faces. Sometimes it manifests itself in our service of God. Others with lesser gifts or shorter experience or poorer preparation are giving positions in the church and we are passed over. How could they give that to him or her and not give that to me? I've been here. I'm far more equipped. I'm far more trained. I'm far more gifted. I'm far more knowledgeable. And yet they pick that person. How can they do that? See the exposure? It's ugly, isn't it? Huh? I remember I had to, I was a Sunday school superintendent, which is a job I wouldn't wish on anybody, but I had it. I've had every job you could have in the church, including janitor. And so I had to go tell this lady that she had been teaching a certain Sunday school class for 25 years. And I had to, I was the fall guy, I had to go and let her know 
that starting the next Sunday school year, she would not be teaching that class. We were changing it and giving it to another person. She unloaded on me like you have never heard. She was beyond angry. She was raging at me and even threatened me. And uh, I, I, I thought about it for a moment. She says, I am the backbone and pillar of this church. I've been here since before you were born. How dare you come and tell me that? So I went and told the pastor, and he just laughed. He says, well, it seems like maybe she wasn't doing it for the right reasons, you think? <laughs> you see, it's, humility is impossible. It's just impossible. Sometimes it manifests itself in our service of God. We aren't appreciated enough. We aren't applauded enough. We're not patted on the back enough. I say that with all due respect, knowing today is Pastor Appreciation Day, by the way. <laughs> but to the contrary, what is irking us is the grace of God which irritates us because down deep we still think grace should always operate on the principle of merit as reward for, or at least recognition of, our prior faithful service. After all, shouldn't the one who is faithful in little be given much? Scriptural justification. Every form of jealousy, all coveting for oneself of what God has given to others, all seeing God's distribution of gifts as related to performance rather than his fatherly pleasure and enjoyment, is infected with this virus. At the end of the day, it means my sense of personal identity and worth has become entwined with performance so, and its recognition rather than being rooted and grounded in Christ and his demerited grace. This too is a subtle form of legalism for which I have suffered. It emerges from my soul as though God's grace to others drew it out of me like a powerful magnet. Grace lances the boil of merit. One of my favorite people who's becoming my favorite, I'm reading him more and more, his name is John Colquhoun. He's quoted in the bulletin. But I want to read the quote at this point. Here's what he says. I think this comes from his treatise on law and gospel. When a man is driven to acts of, be of obedience by the dread of God's wrath revealed in the law and not drawn to them by the belief in his love revealed in the gospel, when he fears God because of his power and justice and not because of his goodness, when he regards God as more an avenging judge than as a compassionate friend and father, and when he contemplates God as a rather terrible majesty, than is infinite in grace and mercy, he shows he is under the dominion or at least under the prevalence of a legal spirit. He shows that he's under the influence of this hateful temper. When his hope of divine mercy is raised by the liveliness of his frame in duties and not by discoveries of the freeness and richness of redeeming grace offered to him in the gospel. And when he expects eternal life, not as the gift of God through Jesus Christ, but as recompense for, from God for his own obedience and suffering, he plainly shows he's under the power of a legal spirit. So legalism has these and many other faces, and it's important for us to understand that. But legalism also issues into what is called a spirit of bondage, bondage to the law. 
And for time purposes, I'm going to have you turn quickly to Romans chapter 7. And I want to look at the first few verses of Romans 7 so that I can help you see our new relationship to the law of God minus the legal temper. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, Christ crucified, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members, to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So what does this have to do with legalism and law centricism? We are released from the law because in Christ we legally died. Paul gives an illustration of a basic fact that the law only binds those who are alive. Death breaks the law's power. Marriage is a binding legal relationship, but is only binding if both the husband and wife are alive. If either dies, both are free from the law of marriage. Then in verses 4 through 6, Paul applies this to us. While it is the husband's death that frees the wife to remarry, in our case, it is our death in Christ that frees us to remarry. The analogy is not completely parallel, but the principle is the same. First, becoming a Christian is a complete change in relationship and allegiance. What an incredible metaphor. We are now married to Christ. To be a Christian is to uh, realize the love of Jesus and to enter into a legal, yet at the same time, personal relationship as comprehensive as marriage. To marry is a comprehensive thing. No part of your life goes unchanged or unaffected. By the way, I was telling someone that recently, to marry is a comprehensive thing. No part of your life goes unchanged or unaffected. It's like Kramer told Jerry on Seinfeld, when you marry her, she's there. When you get up, she's there. When you go to work, come back home, she's there. When you relax in the evening, she's there. When you go to bed, she's there. And because of that, it changes everything about your life. No part of our life is untouched. So, though Christians are now not under the law, they have every aspect and area of their lives changed by the coming in of Jesus Christ. No single area is untouched. Being married to Christ is the final answer to the question, can a Christian live as he or she chooses to live? No, because we love Jesus Christ. Marriage does not entail a significant loss of freedom and independence. Excuse me, marriage does entail a significant loss of freedom and independence. You cannot live now simply as you choose. There's another person to consider. 
A single person can make decisions unilaterally, but a marriage person, married person cannot. There is duty and obligation, but on the other hand, there's now the possibility of an experience of love and intimacy and acceptance and security that you could not have a single, uh, you could never have as a single person. Because of this love and intimacy, our loss of freedom is a joy and not a burden. In a good marriage, your whole life is affected and changed by the wishes and desires of the person who you are in love with. You get pleasure from giving pleasure. That's when you know you have a good marriage because it isn't all about you getting your own pleasure. It's about you giving pleasure to the one you love in everything. And so there's a fundamental change of the motivational level of the heart. You get pleasure from giving pleasure. You seek to discover the wishes of your beloved and are happy to make changes in accord with those wishes. So now Paul has given us the ultimate answer of how Christians live. We are not under the law in that we don't obey the law out of fear or rejection. In other words, we aren't using the law as a system of salvation, a way of acceptance and access to God as a ladder up to Him. No, Jesus' perfect life and death and resurrection is the ladder up to God. And we are accepted in Him so so um, does the Christian ignore the moral law of God? No, we do not. By no means. We look at it as expressing the desires of God. He loves honesty and purity and generosity and truth and integrity and kindness and on and on. We now use the law to please the one who saved us. So we are not under the law. We're no longer married to it. We're married to Christ and we're seeking to please him. And so the law's precepts are ways to honor the one we love. They are not a burden because Jesus said my burden is easy. And my yoke is light. So it's an incentive to live a holy life. John Stott put it this way, and I'm, co I'm close to closing, so focus in here. The pain will soon be over. Is the law still binding on the Christian? And the answer is no and yes. No in the sense that our acceptance before God never depends on it. Christ in his death has fully met the demands of the law on our behalf and we're delivered from it as a means of saving ourselves. It is no longer... It no longer has any claims upon us to condemn us for sin. It, no, it is no longer our Lord. Yes, the law still is binding to us in the sense that we still serve. But the motive and means of our service has altered. Why do we serve? Not because the law is our master and we have to, but because Christ is our husband and we want to. Not because obedience of the law leads to salvation, but because salvation leads to wanting to obey the law. The law says, do this and you will live. The gospel says, you are alive, so now do this. How do we serve? Never in the oldness of the letter, but in the newness of the Spirit. That is, not by an obedience to an external code, but by a surrender to the indwelling Spirit. And so... We have seen that our relationship 
to the law has changed because we have changed and the law no longer is a means of either achieving or maintaining a close relationship with God but rather an expression of our desires to please him because we are so well loved by him. So in conclusion, is there a cure? What is the remedy for legalism? At the stage we have reached in reflecting on this, scarcely needs to be said, but I'll say it anyway. It is grace. It is grace. That's the cure. It's grace. But not grace as a commodity. Not grace as a substance that needs to be infused in us in order that we can obey God and achieve certain level of holiness and righteousness. It is grace in Christ for God's grace to us is Christ. Yes, it is the atonement, but not the atonement as theory or abstract reality, something that has an identity of its own outside of and apart from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Clothed is, is in his gospel work. It is the atonement. He is the propitiation for our sins. The remedy, therefore, is one that healed the Apostle Paul of the deep disease of legalism he suffered from. It's not difficult to imagine that he too knew what it was like to be beaten by the law of Moses. He was, after all, the chief of sinners. But here's what he discovered. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God which depends upon faith. The remedy is prescribed by Charles Wesley, discovering these words are tree, true. O Jesus, full of truth and grace, more full of grace than I am of sin. Where sin abounds, where the law condemns, there's grace abounding all the more, even to the chief of sinners. Indeed, especially to the chief of them, for the more sin there has been, the more God's grace has abounded. This is the flood tide that drowns legalism in its tracks. It is said that such free grace will lead people to conclude, let us go on sinning that grace may abound. We are on safe ground, for that was the conclusion some people drew from what Paul had called his gospel. But antinomianism can never be its fruit, as he demonstrated, and we shall see next Sunday, a sermon on antinomianism or lawlessness. Now, let me wrap this up by saying, legalism is a problem we all face and the cure is to soak ourselves consistently preach the gospel to ourselves legalism is the religious moralistic self-righteous side of our flesh next week we'll look at licentiousness and irreligious and the immoral side of the flesh which is called antinomianism both are gross misuses of the law of God 
And so last week I preached about the law as a gift of grace. This week I preached about legalism as a distortion of the understanding of grace. And next week I'll preach on antinomianism as a distortion of grace as well and a misuse of the law. But in order for us to overcome, and by the way, I consider myself, you don't have to consider yourself this way, but I consider myself this way. I am a recovering legalist. I am a recovering, it raises its ugly head more than I can tell you. And I was so blind to it for so long. I thought I was really zealous and really striving to please the Lord, but in reality, out of all that insecurity, I was, look, I was trying to find a way to get God to like me because I didn't like me at all. Because I knew what I was somewhat like. But the gospel frees you from that. It helps you relax from all of that. And we need to soak ourselves, as it were, in grace. Just do it. It's so counterintuitive, it's hard. But that's what I think Jesus means and the writer to the Hebrews mean when they say strive to enter rest is to put all of your being trying to understand that there's rest in Jesus and not in what we do. You think about that and I will too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again today for your faithfulness in speaking to us. We thank you for your word. It is truth. It is powerful. It is exposing. It convicts us. It encourages us. It builds us up. It gives us strength. It creates in us, by the work of your Spirit, life and hope and joy and peace. So, Father, we thank you for speaking to us today and now as we continue to worship you. We ask that as we receive this offering, it will be used in every way to promote the glory of Jesus Christ and his grace, which is in fullness, which he gives us grace in place of grace. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.